I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending April 10th. In this episode, the Internet of Things and Medical Devices. The combination of advanced sensors and connectivity is driving an evolution in the medical industry, not only in terms of technology, but in terms of the business. Also, Google's self-driving car operation, Waymo, has a pretty good head start on most of the rest of the industry, and it recently began discussing its latest generation of self-driving technology, which includes a surprising number of sensors. Which begs the question, how does a self-driving car deal with that flood of data? We'll get to that in a moment. The medical industry is evolving rapidly with new technology. Sensors keep improving, and different sensors are being combined in ways that support the ability to better monitor a growing number of vital signs. More powerful processors and more flexible memories, combined with clever energy harvesting schemes and improvements in short-range communications, are making it easier to access the data that's being generated and get it to where it needs to go for processing, whether that's in the medical device itself on a nearby piece of equipment, or somewhere in the cloud. Real-time patient data monitoring is a relatively new option, and healthcare practitioners have already seen the benefits, helping to manage diseases and other chronic conditions, including insomnia, diabetes, autism, heart disease, and asthma, among others. Combinations of remote monitoring, mobile platforms, and analytics have cut the rate of readmissions of patients suffering from congestive heart failure, diabetes, and blood pressure, the analysis firm Grandview Research reports. Healthcare has improved with better monitoring and diagnostics. There are also active devices. Pacemakers, for example, have been around for decades. New technology is helping the medical industry move toward actively administering medications and drugs. Adesto Technologies makes ICs for embedded systems. That includes memory chips used in medical devices. That may sound a bit esoteric at first flush, but the memory market puts Adesto in an interesting niche that gives it a unique perspective on the medical internet of things. We spoke with the company's director of product marketing, Paul Hill. So first off, Paul, what I'd like to do is ask you to uh, run over some of the um, medical devices that uh, that your company is is uh, contributing components to. The best was responsible for serial more flash memory products. Um, we have a fairly well-established footprint in the medical markets. Um, we're touching on uh, glucose meters, arrhythmia devices, sleep apnea products and ventilators, syringe pumps, medical monitors, um, all the way through to some pretty advanced uh, technologies such as DNA sequences and CT MRI scanners. Um, The way our memories are being used in these devices is also fairly diverse. Uh, Boot memory, code shadow, um, data logging, event capture, user configuration data, system metadata, user profiles, build control, and even for some security applications. So I think we're touching uh, pretty much the um, entire spectrum of um, usage within the medical markets. And the applications are, uh, I I imagine, uh, the amount and the type of memory you use. Similarly, the type of microcontroller and the sophistication you use vary with um, the size and uh, the complexity of of the end device, right? 
absolutely. Um, you know, glucose meters, uh, certainly the home use um, meters can be fairly low density memory, typically 4, 8, 16, and 32 megabit. And then the sequencers and the CT scanners, um, typically they'll be using a combination of different memory devices, but they'll be up in the sort of 128 megabit plus um, category. Great. Um, and are you finding that um, um, more devices want onboard memory uh, for for uh, storing um, the the collected data, or is it still a mix of devices that hold on to that data for uh, uploading later uh, versus stuff that reports in real time and maybe perhaps doesn't need as much onboard data? or onboard memory. Okay, so recent um, evolution in, in the electronics market, such as over-the-air updates, that's virtually doubled the amount of memory that a, a system generally needs and resulted in more external mm. memory. But for, for, for most mm. medical devices, and this is driven by the um, legal requirements within the medical markets, um, is things like event scanners. So if you take a sleep apnea product where the uh, patient is, or, or the um, user, I should say, is asleep while they're wearing the product, if there is an event such as a, um, you know, they stop breathing and the ventilator takes over to restart their breathing, that itself is an event that is recorded in the memory of the device. Um, if you look at some of the syringe pumps, um, where they're delivering potentially um, you know, uh, toxic uh, uh, drugs you know, in excess of quantities. Mm. So when the, the syringe pump is loaded, um, the person, the nurse, the physician, the clinician that is um, configuring that device, their credentials are stored within the, the syringe pump. The um, dosage rates and the events uh, such as a power fail or a change in the configuration are all logged and those um, data logs are actually mandated legally you know in the event that there is an investigation due to some malpractice or potential malpractice situation those logs are legally binding materials so the medical markets are under extreme scrutiny and the data integrity is paramount now um one of the considerations for the medical market uh, we had discussed before was uh, the fact that um, these devices need to work for a long time and that uh, the type of device uh, might need to be on the market for also quite some time. And that has consequences for um the components themselves, how, how you design them and how long uh, you keep them in production, right? Absolutely correct. Um, the, the key word that you're looking for here is longevity um, and, and closely followed by reliability and sustainability. A lot of these medical manufacturers, um, you know, it takes them three, four, five years to design, develop, um, commission and certify the uh, product in the market you know they have to go through fda um, ceivd approvals and that can, itself can take two or three years and what they don't want is to select a component today and in three or four years just as they go to production and um, get certification they find that the product itself is obsolete and they have to choose another component which essentially resets the clock for them so mm. um, from a desktop side we like to bring that to the 
to the forefront um, and help the customer with that uh, equation. And some of the devices we offer are um, manufactured on a more robust process. So we don't necessarily go for the smallest process, but we do choose a process with a partner um, that can you know, be kept in production for a very long period of time, typically five to 10 years plus which allows these medical manufacturers to get their product commissioned and into production and out into the field um, where they can uh, you know, capitalize on that and uh, you know, sow the benefits of it. All right. So I've been asking you about um, the end customer, someone who uh, is, is designing or specifying a medical device. What are some of the basics they need to know about uh, um, getting into the medical device market? Which component maker are they likely to go to first? What kind of preparation should they have as they try to figure out uh, what's appropriate for um, the end product they're trying to design? Oh, that's uh, a diverse um, response. Mm. Uh, The... I mean, every medical manufacturer has got its own criteria. Um, What exactly is the product? For example, a glucose meter has a different processing requirement to a a medical monitor or syringe pump, as Mm. an example. Um, The amount of uh, processing power required is very different. The amount of memory that's required is very different. And what they want to do in terms of software and user um, features is very different. So that itself will help dictate what kind of memory device they want to use, but it will also dictate the kind of MCU that they're going to choose. Now, Mm. the Desto is not an MCU supplier, uh, but we do work closely with the top-tier MCU vendors um, in the world. Um, And we do spend a lot of our um, time um, in sales and marketing working with those MCU vendors to get our memory devices qualified. Now, those MCU vendors have the same... Uh, challenges that we're talking about here, longevity, performance, um, sustainability, um, integrity. And, you know, these are the factors that the end customer you know, designing the medical equipment needs to take into account. You know, it's they can't get one answer from one vendor. They have to actually approach it from an entire system, ecosystem right. perspective. Um, that said, uh, I understand that uh, there are some reference designs that, that you've devised and some of your partners have devised for, for your end customers to, to uh, be able to, to start with, right? Yeah, absolutely. When a um, medical manufacturer chooses an MCU and then decides that they want to use them in the desktop memory, mm-hmm. um, the next question that comes is, does this memory work with that MCU? And this is often an equation that we have um, preempted uh, by working with those MCU vendors uh, over a long period of time. We can say today we're pretty much um, have good relationships with most of the MCU vendors, um, and it's an ongoing battle. They keep adding new MCUs, we keep adding new memories, and we have to keep revisiting that and getting those new, new devices working together. So uh, we're constantly working on that challenge. So speaking of uh, new stuff... Um, there are new devices coming down the line, companies that seem to be new to the medical device market. You had mentioned earlier prior to our getting to our uh, recording the session that uh, some of the traditional drug companies are, are beginning to um, uh, think about getting into the device market. Can you tell us a little more about that? 
Yes, certainly from what we've seen, um, well, we've touched the market and, uh, you know, we've had um, inquiries and discussions with um, new players in this camp. Um, Electronics is becoming um, more diverse. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to, say, glucose meters, which have been around for, you know, 10 plus years Mm -hmm. um, with a little, uh, you know, card that you insert with a drop of blood on and it reads the... um, glucose levels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, today, uh, drug companies are looking at electronic means to deliver the drugs themselves, you know, not just in um, medical facilities, but in home use as well. Uh, an epinephrine pen is an example that we've uh, touched on in the last two or three years where the uh, drug company wanted to uh, develop a an injector pen that can deliver um, urgent or critical care um, dosage Mm -hmm. and also alert the user um, and their uh, first aiders, first responders that um, this person has been injected. There is a a situation that requires an immediate attention and it can lead also to uh, giving location data so that the first responders can find the person in question. Um, Another example that we talked about prior to this call, uh, Brian, was Mm -hmm. the um, epilepsy smartwatch uh, device. Now, epilepsy, um, I learned a lot from just talking with the vendor on this one, but mm. epilepsy is a, a very little understood um, concern. Right. And the company itself says that these seizures happen with no uh, advanced warning. Mm. The person basically just has a seizure and that's it. So they developed a watch that could monitor the person's biometrics it records the data, which can be used as um, in back channel way uh, back to the physician. Mm-hmm. They can monitor that and learn about the epilepsy. What's the onset? What's the uh, trigger points? Mm-hmm. Um, is there an, an early warning that they can deem, uh, figure out from this? But at the same time, when a seizure does happen, the watch itself can um, alert the first responders. It can get, deliver um location data, and it can also go into a data logging mode, which uh, monitors the person's um, uh, biometrics, Mm -hmm. heart rate, breathing, blood oxygenation levels, um, body temperature, um, blood pressure. And from this, it can then uh, give the first responders and ultimately the paramedics um, a lot of critical data that can help them provide primary care for the patient. So this is uh, a really incredible device that we've seen. And it, it's actually no longer looking like a medical device that could be you'd want to hide from the public view. It looks like a really credible smartwatch. And it actually does tell the time as well. So it's no longer... Bonus. You know, it's a bonus. Yeah. These guys are taking away that... Um, a stigma, negative, right? Yeah. A stigma. Right. Exactly. Great yeah. word. Well, very good. Uh all very cool, Paul. Thank you so much for uh, for uh, coming on to our show and telling us about uh, about the wearable market. No, my pleasure. The medical IoT market is a huge business. How huge? The analysis firm Markets and Markets in December calculated it would be a one hundred and eighty eight billion dollar business by twenty twenty four. Grandview Research, which I mentioned a few moments ago, 
Earlier in 2019, projected the market would grow to $534 billion by 2025. So that's dueling projections. $188 billion in 2024 and $535 billion by 2025, one year later. Well, neither firm thinks the market is growing so fast it could more than double in one year. It's just that one of those companies has a far more inclusive view of what qualifies as medical IoT. The point is that either way, that is a goodly number of billions. Early in 2020, it became absolutely clear that the world is not going to get demonstrably safe, truly self-driving cars roaming freely on the roads anytime soon. There are a number of things holding back self-driving technologies. One of them is the lack of better performing software algorithms, and another is the need for better sensors. Waymo is believed to be far ahead of its competitors when it comes to software development. As for better sensors, well, Waymo has been designing its own radars, lidars, and cameras. And to make its robo-taxi safer, what is Waymo doing? We know they've been adding more sensors. Waymo is known for disclosing few details, but at the end of March, the head of design at the company, Yu Zhang An, posted a presentation on YouTube that she had prepared for this year's South by Southwest conference, which was canceled due to the novel coronavirus outbreak. Here she is. There are two pieces to the Waymo driver, hardware and software. On the hardware side, we have a sensor suite that includes LiDAR, cameras, radar, and a powerful AI compute platform. Combined, these sensors give our vehicles a 360-degree view of the world, over 300 meters away. On the software side, the brain of our self-driving vehicles we take all of the information our sensors collect to answer four key questions. Where am I? What's around me? What will happen next? And what should I do? Together, our hardware and software work in concert to paint a complete picture of the world around the car and enable us to navigate roads safely. Now, we've known that Waymo has been adding more and more sensors for a while. More sensors cost more money. That was an obvious conclusion. But there's another cost that Waymo simply glossed right over. This is international editor Junko Yoshida talking to Yole development analyst Pierre Kambu. The conversation was recorded before Waymo posted its South by Southwest video. Pierre, you talked about a terrible discovery you made <laughs> in the, when you're looking into the future, the uh, processing power required for an autonomous vehicle to properly function. What discovery did you actually make? Basically, the, the budget we have in terms of data is extremely limited. Yep. It's not because we will double the computing power that we will be able to bring uh, more data, more cameras uh, to those cars. Yeah. So the room for improvement is, is, is very scarce. Right. We, we, we need to work with the data uh, rate or the, the data flow that is, uh, you know, that that let's say 10 cameras are, are providing and we yeah. will not get much more budget in the future. Right. So tell me a little bit of math here, but because you said you come from sensing side. Mm -hmm. You didn't calculate from what's available processing power. You came from 
how much more cameras can we add to the autonomous vehicle? So what the uh, what is the thing that you discovered? It's not actually um, the thing is each time what we discovered. Yeah. What we discovered is uh, typically in automotive, uh, we've seen that we've moved from one camera to three cameras. Right. Okay. And what is the implication of, of computing? And we discovered that it, okay, we need ten times the we need ten, we, it's triple right. triple Judge, the camera right. and it's nine times the the computing power. Okay, to make it simple. Right. So it's the computing power needed is uh, evolves to the square of the data that is provided. Right. So, this arm race that we see today on, on the computing side yeah. will eventually stop because the limit is the Moore law. The yeah. Moore law provides yeah. the pace of, of a computing power. Yeah. Um, we, we know we double every 18 months. Right. And so uh, since <coughs> the cameras uh, will, I mean, the, the, the number of cameras I can put on my system. Right is inherently limited by the computing power. Yeah. And because there is a relationship of uh, one to the square of the, of the of, I mean. It's, it's a logarithm. You, exactly. You yeah, I mean, right. basically what it says, what we discovered and is that uh, there is no room for more sensor. There is just no room for it. Right. Give me a little example here that, the, for example, the Waymo car that we now, now it's being tested in Arizona, for example, how many cameras does it have? Your study shows. Yeah, we, we've seen, uh, and this is part of the analysis, yeah. we, we, we saw that the first generation had on the order of eight cameras. Eight and cameras, yeah, yeah. Eight cameras, and their second generation probably uh, with uh, at least triple the computing power, only have uh, 14 cameras. So they, s they slightly increased, but they couldn't increase, uh, they didn't increase that much. Uh, Despite the number of cameras, that, that you're not really moving the needle, you said, in, in terms, terms of the quality. In terms of, okay. in terms of cameras, yeah. uh, maybe they wish to put far more, but they just can't. They don't yeah. have the processing power. So, so basically what it says is, is that uh, uh, in the future, uh, in order to, to improve the performance of autonomy, yeah. I mean, to improve the yeah. safety, to improve yeah. the speed of, uh, of those vehicles, right. um, it will, the dependence on, on, on the, the, the Moore law right. is, 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 a, is, is tremendous. Right. And basically, we will not be able to bring more sensors. Sure. So there, there, there is a, a demand for better ways uh -huh. to approach the problem. And this is where we see uh, uh, the introduction of new new sensors, such as LiDARs yeah. or thermal cameras. Thermal to, cameras, yes, yeah. to improve the quality within the data budget. Right. So rather than throwing more cameras at it, let's replace a camera with a different modality, um, the sensors that can add which data. Richer data, rather. Basically, yeah. uh, for the computing power we ha we have, yeah. uh, there is a l very limited data budget that yeah. I have. Okay, within this data budget, I can put cameras. I can maybe put other sensors. Mm -hmm. And and typically, uh, what we see for robotic vehicles is that they 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 approach the problem with lidars, for yes. example. Yes. And now we start the to see introduction of thermal cameras. Yeah. And this is. 
really uh, were, you know, in combination of the effort of more computing power, right. there is this new trend yeah. of, of uh, uh, introducing new modalities, mm -hmm. new sensing. Right. You mentioned a little bit about the uh, neuromorphic camera. Can you explain? So neuromorphic is a is a term that is coined on, on uh, it's a biomimicking uh, brain inspired uh, type of uh, yeah. of sensing, right? Yes, yeah. it's of sensing, sensing, but also computing. So it's really the combination neuromorphic. You can, you have neuromorphic sensing, yep. and you have also neuromorphic computing. Yeah. Okay. And from my point of view, this this could be a third way because you 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 combine a new approach, a new type of sensing. Yeah. And a new, a new type of computing. And, right. and this time, maybe, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no assurance, but okay, maybe uh, this could solve this, this, uh, this issue of uh, not being able to, to provide uh, more data to, the, to solving this uh, robotic uh, or autonomy issue. All right. Thank you very much. So I mentioned that the conversation you just heard was recorded before Waymo posted its video. At the time, Junko and Pierre were under the impression Waymo was going to use about a dozen cameras or so. With the latest announcement, Waymo jacked up the number to 29. Yes, that's going to take even more processing power. We went back to Kambu, who said that doubling the number of cameras feels like a lot, but he and his colleagues believe that number might go even higher. Furthermore, the issue is the mix of cameras. In short, while roboticists may want more cameras, the future of autonomous driving does not lie in the quantity of data, but more about the quality of data, which could be created by diversity of modality of sensors. And speaking of stud finders, it's now time for our weekly jaunt in the Wayback Machine, which takes us back to important dates in science history. Last week, our segment was written by EDN editor Jessica McNeil. This week, we have her with us. Uh, Jessica, I promise not to call you Mr. Peabody if you promise not to pat me on the head and call me Sherman. All right. Sounds good, Brian. All right. So where are you going to, when are you going to take us to first? I figured we could start with March 30th, 1951. Uh, that's when the U.S. Census Bureau received the first Univac 1 computer. Computer pioneers John Mockley and J. Presper Eggert got a study contract from the National Bureau of Standards in 1946 to design a computer for the Census Bureau. The result of the study was the Universal Automatic Computer, which was the first American computer designed for business and administrative use. It could complete 1,905 operations per second, and data was tabulated using vacuum tubes and state-of-the-art circuits before being printed out or stored on magnetic tape. The computer tabulated part of the 1950 population census and the entire 1954 economic census. The project was so successful that the Census Bureau bought another Univac 1 machine in the mid-1950s and two Univac 1105 computers for the 1960 census. In 1952, CBS used the Univac 1 computer in a promotional event to predict the outcome of an election. The U.S. presidential election results were less than 1% off the computer's correct prediction of an Eisenhower victory. All right. So did you uh, did you do your 2020 census? I did. Did you? I did. Uh, I was 
I don't know how many censuses you have ever filled out, but I've done maybe, I don't know, maybe three or four of these. And I think I begged my grandparents to do the one in 1970 for them. Oh, really? And uh, I was kind of amazed at how few questions there were on this census. I know. I, I don't think I've ever got to fill out a paper one. So this was my first one and I did it online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking at this point with so few questions, you might not need a univac to tell you all the responses. I hope so. Probably just need somebody <laughs> in a back room with a with an abacus, right? <laughs> okay, where are you going to take us next? Uh, next, we'll go to 1976. Okay. Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Ronald Wayne were not joking when on April Fool's Day in 1976, they formed Apple Computer to sell the Apple One personal computer kit. The kits were hand-built by Wozniak and went on sale in July 1976 at a retail price of $666.66. It was soon replaced when the Apple II was introduced in 1977. In what may have been a foolish move... Wayne sold his share of the company to Jobs and Wozniak for $800 before it was incorporated in 1977. In 2007, the company dropped the computer from its name to reflect its focus on consumer electronics. The success of the iPod, iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch have made Apple one of the most well-known electronic brands in the world. Okay, are you ready for a complete tangent that has nothing to do, very little to do with Apple? I would love one. (laughs) Okay. So at the exact same time that Steve Jobs and Wozniak and Mr. Wayne were in their garage, Mm -hmm. in another garage just two miles away, there was a the the guy who ran Zircon, a guy named Chuck Strauss, was building the very first electronic stud finder. Oh wow. You are amazing. <laughs> I am. Kindred spirit. This is excellent. Okay, we're going to have to do this. I, I'm so happy we have you on. I love a good stud finder. All right. <laughs> I, I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not going to touch that as a straight line. <laughs> our, what's, what's, our next, uh, what's our next date for you, that you have for us? All right. We have one more from April, which was on okay. April 3rd, 1973, when Motorola's Marty Cooper made the first call from a handheld mobile phone. The call was made near a 900 megahertz base station on 6th Avenue between 53rd and 54th Streets in New York to Motorola competitor Bell Labs in New Jersey. Cooper called Bell Labs' Joel S. Engel, whose work led to the development of cellular mobile communication systems. A prototype of the Dynatac 8000X was used to make the call. Ten years later, it would become the first mobile phone to be commercially released. In 1973, it weighed one kilogram and measured 22 centimeters long, 12 centimeters deep, and 4 centimeters wide. In a commercial from the 80s, Motorola claimed, Eventually, seeing people using cellular phones may seem as commonplace as someone checking time on an electronic watch, figuring on an electronic calculator, or programming on an electronic computer. Today, we do all of those tasks on our smartphones. Uh, Frequently enough, an iPhone Interesting. We, we have a kind of a confluence of, of factors today. Well, I'm an Android person, but I suppose that's true. <gasps> <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Thank you so much, Brian. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, bye. So that's your weekly briefing for the week ending April 10th. 
Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next Friday with a new episode. The Weekly Briefing is available on all your favorite podcast apps, but if you get there via our website at eetimes.com, what you do is click on the nav bar button that says radio. If you pop into the website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we refer to. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.